Hello, my name is Colin Donnell, and you're listening to Episode 11 of The Run Loop, a weekly discussion about designing and developing iOS and Mac apps. Today's guest is Sarush Kanlu. Sarush, welcome to the show. Hey, Colin. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I've actually, I guess, I don't know if fan's the right word, but I've been a, uh, a reader, a fan of your blog for quite a while. Uh, I really, but we, really appreciate that. Yeah, it's one of my favorites, but we actually just first met at uh at uh, at WWDC. Um yeah, I had I had heard of your podcast through some retweets from I can't remember who. Uh and um your first episode was with uh Samuel in Japan, right? Yeah, Samuel. Yeah. Um yeah, that was a really cool episode. So I I gave that episode a listen. I was like, "Oh, this guy's cool. This guy's Colin." And um, and then we totally got to meet and hang out at WWDC, which was awesome too. Yeah, we uh, we we met at the uh, at the micro dot blog meetup that they did there, which I mentioned specifically just because uh, I've noticed that I'm actually mentioned Manton's micro dot blog thing on almost every episode since he's been on. Nice. So I thought I would keep that going. <laughs> um, so uh, I know who you are, but how would how would people know who you are? Um, yeah, so like you mentioned, I think if anybody knows me from anything, it's probably the blog. Uh, the blog is mylastname.com, so conlu.com. Um, and I write about uh, mostly programming, sometimes other stuff, but pretty much programming. Um, and the way I kind of pitch the blog is it's like if me from, you know, some amount of time ago uh, wanted to learn everything about this topic, what would that article look like? So sometimes that length of time is six months, sometimes it's two years, sometimes it's five years, but it's kind of this idea of like, well, let me write to my past self, kind of assuming that somebody um, out there is in the same place that my past self was and wants to know the same things that my past self did. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a great blog. I, uh, what I, I, I love how, uh, how in-depth it is. Like you said, you try and like, if you want to know everything about a topic, that it really is like that, though. Like, you really, um, you do not shy away from, like, very technical details of whatever you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I really appreciate that. That is kind of the goal. It's just to be like, you know, make sure that you give the reader something that is, like, really useful. Something they can't get from the Apple documentation. Something they can't get um, just from, you know, truly starting to implement things. Something they can't get from autocomplete, you know. Um, give them something like real, some like really hard learned lesson. Yeah, absolutely. That's for sure what it comes off like. So, um, backing up a little bit, how did you? How did you? How how'd you get in this game? How'd you? How'd you get started with uh, with making iPhone apps and whatnot? Uh, the year was 2010, and I'd been making a lot of websites for people. There was some decent money in college doing that. Um, you know, in, enough for a college student to have some you know beer and wing money. And, um, and I saw that Apple announced this new thing. It's called an iPad. And I was like, well, it would be so great if I could just replace my laptop with this thing. And then it would be, you know, it would be so easy to travel. It would be so light. But, you know, I can't make any, um, I can't make my websites on this thing. So how is that, that going to work? You know, I use Coda on the, on the Mac. Um, but, you know, nobody's going to think to make a version of Coda for this. Hmm. So I should do it. And so I basically spent the two months between it was more than two months it was january to april so maybe three months maybe four months um 
learning Objective-C and basically throwing together this app. It was essentially like an FTP client plus a text editor so that you could connect to you know whatever server you had, edit the files on it. Um, no concept of Git, no concept even of like syntax highlighting. That was really, really hard back in iOS 3. Yeah, absolutely. Um, None of that stuff. Uh, a couple of small little features, and I wanted to add more to it over time. I wanted like a nice color picker. Uh, you could upload files that were like on your from your like image roll. Um, that was really fun. And so I made this app and put it on the app store day one. And um, we could go into depth about how bad the code was. Two thousand ten Sarush definitely needed my blog. Uh, a lot of the posts are for for him. Um, and. Uh, put it up on the App Store day one and actually made some, you know, some okay money. I think it was possible to make okay money back then on the App Store. And that was kind of it. And that was like, I was kind of hooked after that. So before 2010, what, what, what were you using for web development? It was, um, it was all the backend was always PHP just because that was the thing that I knew. And mm-hmm. I knew I, I should be learning like Rails or something like that, but never like had the chance. And then the front end was just, you know, pretty bog standard CSS. I don't even. I think like SAS and and less and those preprocessors for CSS were like just coming into vogue um, back then. And so, like, I didn't even use that stuff. It was just really just writing the code. Hmm. Yeah. Now that's interesting because I remember. Uh, I think one of the first things I saw from you would have been from I don't know a couple of years ago, and it was comparing Objective C and Ruby. So I thought maybe you came from Ruby. No, it was back in those days. It was PHP. That was uh, seven, almost eight years ago. Um, Ruby. When did I like get to know any Ruby? It was at it was when I worked at Rap Genius. We kind of like I kind of started dabbling in the Rails code base there and learning all the little Rails idioms and how that stuff worked, all the crazy metaprogramming. They gave me a couple books that I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, metaprogramming in Ruby is a really really good one that teaches you just like how crazy powerful that you know when you take away the types, like what kind of like totally nuts stuff you can do. And that, that kind of like got me thinking about a lot of that stuff. And because they're both very small talky languages, both Objective-C and Ruby, I thought it would be nice to do like a compare and contrast between the two. Yeah, that absolutely. Um, yeah. I, have you ever programmed in small talk at all? Have you ever experimented with that? So I've never programmed in it. Um, I'm small talk curious, but I've never programmed in it. And um, I've read a decent amount about it, but never like really actually spun up an image and like put stuff into it. Yeah, I I wouldn't say I've ever like done enough of it that I could like be successful at it, if you know what I mean. But I've <laughs> yeah. like I've like experienced like there was a um, there was a web framework for it a few years ago called Seaside that I experimented with, and uh, yeah, Smalltalk's such a weird and cool language. Um, yeah, it was such a it was so different, I think, than everything else that ever existed, and almost so different than like you know even a lot of the things that exist today. Just a lot of those concepts of like, you just have a, your code is not text. It's like this image that you can just box up, which includes all of its state and just send it to another computer and start running that image there. And like, that was, it's just such a weird concept that um, never really, I think, developed the wings that it, that it deserved to. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the thing that I found really uh, challenging with doing, um, with doing small talk is, you know, you're working, you work in the image, which is sort of like your desktop and also the code editor and also it's just everything. Yeah. And so you end up like, like somebody who does more small talk than I have would know more about this, but like you don't end up like using 
Git, right? You end up using like this weird small talk thing because that's what they have developed, you know, in small talk to do, uh, you know, source management and whatever. And like things, so it it's it is very different than uh, other stuff. Yeah, I've I've also heard the refactoring tools are really crazy because you're not really refactoring text; you're refactoring these like live things that just exist. And so you could, because like when you edited the name of a property, like you would just, it would just go through all the instances of that property and just like mutate it and edit it. And so the refactoring tools even back then were, and this was, you know, 70, 76 to 80. Um, what is that? 35 years ago were apparently really good. Like, you know, and here we are with Swift, just like, so thankful that they finally gave us like an inline inline refactoring tool that's just like doing a bunch of grepping and, and g subbing on some text. I'm so glad that's going to be there now. Though. Yeah, that's going to be that's like the thing I'm most excited about from Dub Dub this year. Really, that they yeah. that they uh, honestly, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's been a really big pain actually. The last couple of years, not having uh, the good refactoring tools in Swift. Um, anyway, so. I, I, I got a sidetracked on this small talk thing because uh, I think small <laughs> tech is so cool. Uh, but so you made this app. So it was a, you know, like a text editor for editing files on the server, right? Right. Um, what happened next? Um, I, so I was in college at the time and I was getting a bioengineering degree and I started, I headed off to grad school and I don't know. The app just, I, I still have regrets about this. The app just never got to where it could be. And I really think that a lot of people um, bought the app with the hope of updates that would add things like syntax highlighting and autocomplete and stuff like that. And I really wasn't a good enough programmer to get to it back then. And then by the time I maybe was a good enough programmer, I kind of had the income from it had tapered off and made it like a lot less worth it to to mm-hmm. do. And so it kind of ended up in this like half finished state that I kind of sometimes feel all software ends up in, but I just felt very guilty about like sort of the, the place that it ended up. Um, and so I really couldn't justify working on it much anymore, especially given that I was in grad school at the time working in a lab full time, uh, and didn't really have the time to, to sort of work on it much more. So that eventually kind of shut itself down, took it off the app store. I'm not sure if the, I wonder if the website for it is still up. No, the website's down. Um, and then after that, I went on to my second app, which was a synced uh, podcast player where you could basically uh, – the concept was two big things. One was a bookmarklet like Instapaper. So you could add any podcast from anywhere on the web to your sort of feed and then – or to your like kind of unplayed queue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other part of it was you could also pause listening to a podcast in one place and then go to either another app or go to the web and start and pick up right there, which That's was cool. also, yeah, it was cool. But it was a little bit before its time, and it's, you know, I think as a programmer, you sometimes think it's like an if you build it, they will come situation. Um, and there are so many other components, right? Like you can uh, listen to, you know, people that we know in the industry, like Joe Chaplinsky and uh, Charles Perry, they talk about everything but the code, right? The marketing, the icon, the like, how are you going to get word out about your app? And the pieces sort of fell into place for my first app, uh, just because it was an uh, early days app store. There were a thousand apps on the iPad back then. And so it was like, you could literally scroll through all of them in one day. But the iPhone's a different story, and you got to get attention somehow. And, um, 
And so the podcast app didn't really get the attention it deserved, and the code wasn't really as stable as I wanted it to be. Um, really still felt like I was learning a lot back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so that was like sort of my second kind of indie app, which was, um, which yeah, didn't, didn't really get to anything big, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that, man, I love the, uh, release notes podcast with, uh, with, with Charles and, uh, and, and Joe. Um, aren't they great? Yeah, they're really great. Uh, Joe actually did the, uh, the app icon or not the app icon, the show artwork for this show. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, he's he's wonderful. Uh so yeah, that that makes sense. I mean, you know, you make things and sometimes it grows and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, and, pretty much. Yeah. Uh I was listening to something earlier where they were talking about, you know, a lot of success being like, you know, it's really more like this is probably off topic, but how it's kind of more like a lottery ticket than a um you know, when you hear people talk about how they became successful at doing, you know, podcasts or YouTube or apps or whatever. And really, it's more like a lottery ticket where it's, it's like, you can buy more lottery tickets, and that will increase your chances. But like, (laughs) how much work you put into something or whatever doesn't maybe make that much of a difference. Like up to a certain point. Are you talking about the Darius uh, Kazemi uh, XOXO talk? Yeah, that's a really, really good one. We should put that in the show notes. Yeah, we will. Um, Um, yeah, I think he has a really great angle on it, which is just like you got to do the work to get the thing out there, and there is some stuff you can do to make to push a thing, but ultimately, it's like you know, it's up to the fates. Yeah, like you have to get to a certain baseline of quality, right? Like right. if it's not a usable thing, yeah. like if your podcast player didn't play podcasts or the bookmarklet didn't work, right. that wouldn't have been a very you know, you wouldn't have had any chance. But like, I think the example that I heard was. Um, uh, Whereas he, you know, he said something like, you know, he showed like a lottery ticket and he's like, so, you know, I have this many nines and this many threes and three is also, you know, nine is also three times three, right? <laughs> like trying to like say like, this is how you would win the lottery. Right. Um, which trying I think is post hoc yeah. figure out like, oh, it was because of the threes, you know, yeah. when it was really just dumb luck. Just luck. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you mentioned... Uh, so actually, uh, something I didn't know is that you worked at Rap Genius. I did work at Rap Genius. Yeah. When, when was that? What did you do? Tell me all about it. So um, yeah, so basically after that podcast app, I kind of worked at a really small startup, then went to Paperless Post for a little while. This was like the like corporate stooge part of my life, even though mm-hmm. the corporations were like startups that were like you know under a hundred people. Um, and then after that, I went to Rap Genius, uh, and this was maybe like two thousand. 13 to 15-ish time range. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I worked there. I was the only iOS person there for um, pretty much the whole time I was there. And uh, learned, like, the engineers that work there are extremely smart. And, like, I think that led to a lot of growth for me, especially thinking about perspectives from outside of how we normally um, look at problems as iOS engineers. And seeing like, oh, like these other people have like been through this problem, right? Like I write about, and I, and I kind of touch on this in, in blog posts here and there, but like I'll write about, oh, you know, massive view controller, right? This is this thing. It's such a serious problem. Ruby and the Rails community went through this exact thing like three, four years before we did, they, mm-hmm. except they called it fat controller. And fat controller became fat model. And then like they dealt with the fat model problem. And eventually they like got to a point 
where they like figured out how to factor out and break down these things into their constituent units and then were able to test those units and they were kind of happy. And it's like, why do we have to go through all this wailing and gnashing just to solve the same problem that they already solved? Like, let's just look to them. They just did it. And like try to figure out sort of is this thing good for us or is this thing bad for us? Like can we can we take lessons from how they screwed up to make our lives better and make our sort of the time we have to spend dealing with this problem shorter? Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, one of the posts that gets linked a lot that I wrote uh, eight patterns to destroy massive view controller. Um, that one is pretty much like not a clone because obviously the patterns are very different and the environments are so different. But um, there's a there's a post on um, on a Rails blog uh, called I think seven um, seven patterns to refactor act, fat active record models, and I pretty much just took these same ideas or the same concept of a post and said, okay, well, what would this look like for our industry? Like, why should we wait for like somebody to write this post? Like, it's already been written. Let's just translate it for our community and like put it out in the world um, so that so like we can kind of get past this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so a lot of that stuff I learned from the, the, the engineers at rap genius. Do you think that, so I've, I've heard this before, right? The idea of like, uh, you know, what you're saying about, you know, uh, learning from other communities and whatever, and, um, you know, not having to reinvent the same, uh, lessons and solve the same problems that have already been solved. Right. Do you feel like uh, do you feel like the uh, like the Swift Coco you know iOS Mac community is especially bad in this regard, or do you think, or do you think this is just all different communities kind of go through this same pattern? Um, I think I think a couple things on this. One is it, uh, especially bad is a very harsh way of putting it, but I kind of think that that is like I think we're particularly uh, subject to it. Because I don't want to use you know very strong negative language, but mm-hmm. it's because our teams are isolated, our languages are isolated, um, our tooling is isolated. Uh, I, I there I have plenty of you know friends, people that I know that are the only iOS engineer that work on a particular thing. Um, yeah, me for example. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Exactly. Uh, and which, when I was at Rap Genius, it was that way. Um, met a bunch of other companies I've I was just the only person, and so if you. Um, don't have a community to lean on if you don't have other team members to lean on, if you don't have other languages to draw from, you just end up with, and you have like, and also the pressure of being the only one and having to push out the features that your company might expect from a team of two or three. Um, you don't have time to go learn like, oh, how does closure solve this problem? And it's like, I don't care. Like I got features to deliver. Mm-hmm. And, and so we, I think we're, we're, um, subject to these problems in a little bit harsher of a way than other communities. But that being said, like it's, it's so important to, to learn and to draw from them that we have to make time for it to make time for that personal and community growth. Otherwise we just end up spinning our wheels on the same problem for a very long time. Yeah, that, uh, yeah, I think so too. Um, the, uh, uh, something I used to try and do, which I guess I've, done less of recently, honestly, uh, is uh, learn, you know, spend time learning a different language every year, at least, you know, that isn't the one that I normally program in. Right. Um, you know, because like I spent a bunch of time learning Python and Django, you know, their web development, you know, their Rails kind of thing. 
And, you know, I learned a lot from that. I learned, you know, because uh, they have all these different patterns and things that they use that we don't use and different way of looking at the code. And um, and I always found that to be really, you know, in like small talk where I spent a bunch of time tooling around with that. I didn't, I didn't get that good at it, like I said. Uh, you know, and I, I do feel like, you know, seeing how other, you know, communities, groups do things is actually really useful. For sure, for sure. I did a little bit of Haskell in that way. And I was like, well, how does like, especially with, you know, Swift coming into popularity, this like really strict heavy type system coming in, um, like, let's take a look at one of the strictest languages and see how they solve these problems. And maybe that'll help us understand the monad stuff that people are always going on about, the like, you know, profunctor optics or whatever that people are, you know, like, let's see if we can figure out is any of this stuff useful? And like, can we draw it back to what we know? Is it, is it important to know about? And like, yeah, so it's hard because it's, you know, we have our full-time jobs and then to be expected to then come home and do more programming. Some people do that because it's fun for them, but to have it be an expectation is a bit, a, a bit of a high bar. But that being said, it's just so valuable to like, look at how others, how other things work and kind of take them apart. Yeah, I guess I haven't really, uh, you know, I, I've been doing iOS development for, I don't know, however long that's been a job now. So, you know, coming up on nine or 10 years or something, Wow, uh, nine years or so. And, uh, and I was just thinking about what you just said about, uh, you know, so I haven't, I guess what I'm saying is I started, this is my first like professional kind of job is what I meant to say. Right. Um, you know, I didn't like work in an office at a computer programming a different thing. Like this was the first time I did that. And I've just kept doing it for like nine years. And <laughs> um, so I don't have an experience working in different industries, but like something you just said really made me think I'm like, oh, yeah, like when you're a developer, uh, you, you know, you go and work all day and do your work. But then also like a lot of times the developer's hobby is also basically doing the same thing. Right. But on their right. own time, too. Yeah. Or for their projects or whatever. Yeah, like, you know, developers are kind of, you know, you're kind of expected to do that, you know, because, you know, a lot of time there isn't, especially, you know, working at a company, there isn't a lot of time to, you know, take a couple hours in the day or whatever to go read blogs and learn about stuff. You know, you, like you said, you're, you're supposed to be shipping features and whatnot. Yeah, um, slammed. Yeah, for sure. Especially if you're the only one on a team. Um so that 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 is interesting. I wonder if people in other industries, uh, you know, that aren't programming also are like that, or if people sort of do their job and then go home and you know don't go and like read like lawyer blogs or accounting blogs or whatever in <laughs> free time. Also, uh, my girlfriend is a lawyer, and while she does read the lawyer blogs, they're more about they're less about like skills and things you need to know, and more about like what's happening in the industry, what's mm-hmm. like. What's the gossip of this law firm maybe raising salaries for these people? This one is like letting these associates go or like, you know, it's more about the industry and less about the actual practice of the thing. Hmm. So they do it to some degree. Yeah, I I feel like any professional kind of thing that probably has to be to some degree because, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't go through all that time to become a lawyer if you weren't, you know, interested in it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, uh, so you're working at Rap Genius, um, and you said you were the only the only iOS developer there while you were there, right? Have you also worked on teams, or have you mostly worked by yourself? Uh, honestly, the biggest teams I've ever worked on are like three people, which is really crazy. Yeah, I think for me, about three or four is the biggest I've worked on. Yeah. Do you um, prefer? Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to ask, like. 
how do you compare and contrast that? Like working with other iOS developers versus working by yourself? Like, what do you think the benefits and, uh, you know, uh, not benefits are? Right. It's, um, there's, it's nice in some ways in isolating in others. Um, it's nice in that, like, especially at Rap Genius, like after a year, year and a half there, the code was like so finely tuned to the way that I liked it, to my style, to um, whether that's, you know, down to white space or whether that's actually also down to like how the objects are structured and architected. And that like it was, it was so tuned to my style that I could just like cut through it because I knew what was coming down the pipeline. I knew what abstractions to build and I knew what abstractions I could take advantage of to just like just breeze through this stuff. And that was such a freeing feeling um, of just like, you know, this is your thing and uh, the code is never going to change out from under you. Um, it, it's like, you know, when you, when you go from having roommates to living alone and every mm-hmm. mess in the house is your mess and you know exactly how to clean it up because you made it. Like, um, and all those trade-offs are like, kind of uh, consistent in some way because they were made by one person who also knows about them and knows how to fix them. And you just end up breezing through the code base in a way that when the code base is constantly changing and when you work on a bigger team, you don't have. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, the flip side of it is also that you don't have any spirit of camaraderie. You don't have anyone to lean on if something is going wrong. Um, you don't have You don't have any infrastructure or support to help you out um yeah yeah, so no i i i feel the same way of that you know are you working on a project uh, alone right now yeah i've been alone for two years now um yeah and i mean i think the thing that i've had to do is you know try and be more active and like reading blogs and like you know being active online and stuff yeah Uh, you you have to be you end up being responsible for your own like growth and Yeah. Where when you're on a team, you know, even with just one other person, uh, you know, you do get some amount of, you know, there's like a peer mentorship where you you're talking about things. So like, even if like, you only really talk to them, like you do kind of grow more easily, I think, Uh, you know, because you guys are always talking about, you know, code, and you're working on the same things. And that's, I think that's super valuable. So I do kind of miss it. But on the other hand, what you said about, uh, being able to fly through your own code. I kind of like that too. It is really nice. When it works out, it's so great. Yeah. Except then if I'm, you know, now that I've been working on the same app for, you know, a year, you know, year and a half, two years or whatever. uh, Now, if I have bad parts of the code, I can't blame anybody else for it. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. It's all my fault. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Um, And there's definitely things I would change. Uh, So, um, so you said, uh, the thing, the single thing you were most excited about from WWC was the refactoring tools. Was there anything else that jumped out at you? Yeah, there was a, there was a lot of stuff at WWDC this year. Some of it I like, you know, I'm sure will be cool, but like probably I'm I, I'm not champing at the bit to work on like let's say AR kit. Like I'm sure I'll get like an AR kit <laughs> measurement app or whatever, but I'm probably not going to write one. Um, I think what did I like? Uh, I really need to install iOS 11 on my big iPad. I think that I'm going to really like. I think that's going to be super, super nice. The, I, I got an iPad. I got a 12.9-inch iPad like uh, three two months ago, three months ago. And I, I don't know. I just kind of wish I'd waited for the 
the 120 hertz. It's so cool and weird and feels like retina all over again. Oh, it's so now neat. I, yeah, now i got to wait until like I don't know, five years from now when this iPad is so mm-hmm. slow that you know iPads never go. Yeah, I have an iPad no. Air 2, so I feel like I'm due for one, but right. I really also don't want to spend the money. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I totally know the feeling. Um, but, you know, it's also, it's an iPad. It works great. Like, it's not slow. Like, I'm mm-hmm. not really complaining. Um, so that stuff was cool, the, like, 120 hertz stuff. The, I mean, excited about the Swift, um, the new Swift stuff. I think that would be really nice. Uh, one of the big things that I'm, I've still got my fingers crossed for, but I don't think he's going to come through is, uh, is conditional conformances. That thing where if you have an array of equatables, then you can say that that array is also equatable, but only mm-hmm. when the static type inside of it is equatable. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to be really important for basically handling JSON, uh, both on the client side and on the server side. It's going to be, it's, it would be valuable for uh, NS coding stuff which is also kind of up in the air because it's no codable protocol. It's just, it'll, it'll really allow us to express some things in Swift that we couldn't express before. And I'm really, really excited about that. Yeah. So one thing that you just mentioned, uh, was Swift on the server. Uh, So I did. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, so you are maybe one of the only people I know who is actually, you're, so you, you ship this app called uh, beacon and I'd like to talk about that. Uh, Beacon is a uh, everybody was using it at WWC as you know far as far as I could tell uh, everybody being like me and my friends, um, <laughs> but it's an app for to meet people that either you know or don't know and you can say I'm going to be at Phil's Coffee at twelve thirty let's do an impromptu meetup you know or whatever and then everybody can just you know come and meet and hang out. Or, you know, you can do uh, something bigger or you can do anything you want with it, right? That's a meetup yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. So that microblogger meetup that you and I met at was organized on Beacon. Yeah. And like, there had to be 30 or 40 people there. It was huge. Yeah, it was, it was a big one. I was very happy with the turnout of that one. Yeah. So uh, so before we talk about Swift on the server, which you're using for Beacon, which is what I'm super interested, I am super interested in talking about that, but let's talk about Beacon first as a thing. How did, um, how did this app come about? Uh, tell me about the people you made it with, you know, um, what, what's that been like? Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, basically it was like maybe six weeks before DubDub and, um, so, so Beacon was made by me and Ashley Nelson Hornstein. Um, and we were kind of talking, uh, a f- like a couple weeks before Dub Dub, and we were like, "Oh, I don't." And and she in particular, I think, was not excited about any of the like uh, contracting opportunities and stuff that were in front of her. And she was just like, "I really want to work on something that's like fun, exciting, mine, interesting." Um, and I was like, "You know, I've been doing," and so I've been doing contracting um, for the last like year and a half or so. Uh, as well. And, you know, that stuff, while it's nice, it pays the bills quite well. Um, but ultimately you kind of end up having to divorce yourself from each app because after a few months you got to kind of say goodbye and, and work on a new thing. And none of it ever, you ever really get to like sink your whole heart and soul into. And so we were kind of talking about this stuff and we were like, well, um, what if we made something? And, and, and she was like, oh, that'd be cool. I had a couple ideas sitting around and we went through some of them, and she mentioned this one that was like, oh, I kind of want to be able to like signal availability to my friends to be able to say, hey, um, you know, let's all go to Wonder Woman tonight. Like, like, who's up mm-hmm. for that? And I don't have to text everybody separately. And you know, um, 
Like maybe we could do something around that. And I was like, well, Dub Dub is coming up, and this would actually be pretty smashing at Dub Dub. And so she was like, how do you think? And we were like, oh, maybe, yeah. And so we kind of talked about it. Um, and after like sort of a week of sitting on it, we're like, maybe we should just start this thing and see where life takes us. And we did. And within the next five weeks, which was like basically the amount of time we had before Dub Dub started, uh, we built the server, we built the app, and got it launched, put it on the App Store. And uh, launched it like the Sunday before Dub Dub, like the day before Dub Dub. Um, so yeah, it was a real, real whirlwind. Yeah, it's incredible. It's uh, I can't believe you guys did all of that in you know a month and a half yeah. or less. Yeah. So this also kind of goes back to the idea of like, well, do you want to work with people or do you want to work alone? If either of us were working alone, we never would have been able to finish it. Mm-hmm. Just absolutely no way. It was way too much work. But because we had. Um, two, you know, really strong developers working on this thing. We were able to knock out way more work working together than we could have if we were working separately. Um, yeah, yeah, and I think it's a fantastic app. Uh, I like. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, I like. Uh, who did? Uh, did one of you guys make the app icon, or did somebody else do it? So the yeah, so the the design is basically the other component of this. As we were building it, we kind of had a. We had a rough structure of how we wanted things to be. Like we had like a feed. We had each feed represented a cell with like these little circle avatars for who was going. But it was really ugly. Like honestly, two developers trying to make, trying to design a nice looking app is just like not going to work. Mm-hmm. So we kind of reached out to some friends like, hey, what do you think about this idea? And one of them was super, super interested in it. So Linda Dong, um, who is uh, a really, really great designer, just like one of those people that you see their work and you're like, I see how you got here, but I never could have gotten here myself. And I don't know anybody else who could have. Um, and she was like, this is awesome. Like, I want to help with this. Uh, and we're like, all right, sweet. And so in the space of like three hours, she basically polished up our designs, tightened up a lot of the workflows, tightened up a lot of like, uh, not only the visual design, but also like where things are, how they work. And, Mm -hmm you know, gave this sketch file to us and we're like, all right. And so we implemented that and that really took the app. Like I think, you know, the app is really colorful um, and it's fun. And like all of that is purely Linda. Like it is just all Linda. Um, So we were extremely lucky to get to work with her. Uh, And so as for the icon, we kind of threw around some ideas. We end up with this like fun gradient thing. And the lighthouse itself is actually, uh, from the noun project, which is this website where you can just kind of search for a term and get a bunch of sort of black and white icons for any given thing. And then you mm-hmm. can buy them. They're really cheap. And then like throw them in an app icon, throw them in a, in a UI bar button item and, you know, kind of just run with that. Oh, that's funny. Cause I was going to, really yeah, good website. I, that's, that's great. I'm, we'll make sure to put a link for that. Um, cause I'm going to use that now. Uh, yeah. cause I, I, cause I was, I called that the icon cause I thought it was a nice icon. I really like it. Um, and I like the, des- yeah, I like the design of the app in general in that it's very, like you said, it's very, uh, it's very colorful and fun, but it I'm trying to, trying to put this right is that it's very, it feels like an iOS app, but it's very like, it has a lot of personality. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's kind of the vibe we were going for. Yeah. I like how much personality and how fun it is. I think that's really cool. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. Yeah, and and we also kind of wanted to like, we wanted to respect the platform. Obviously, especially we're all iOS developers. We don't do much web. We don't do much. We don't do any Android. I don't think we love iOS as a platform, but also like the ability to kind of push it beyond 
and see like where things are going. So I think um, Linda took some inspiration from like the way that the um, music app looks in iOS 10 as kind of a, a signal. It's like maybe where the trend is going and designed it with these big, bold headers that ended up being like a big part of iOS 11. And so the app almost looked prescient to a degree uh, just because Linda was so forward thinking in her design. Yeah, I like the uh, yeah, I like the big bold headers at top at the top. I also really like uh, you know that instead of having like a plus button somewhere in the top, it has a uh, you know it has a text box in the bottom, and then that's how you create a new uh, you know a new event. Um, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I just yeah, I just think it's great looking. Uh, so um, yeah, I just think it's a great looking app. Um, Thank you. Yeah, uh, and also it works really well and. I was trying to come up with a segue, but I couldn't. So I'm just going to say now. <laughs> That's good. Like you're, you're doing great. <laughs> yeah. But now we'd like to talk about the back end for it. You're using Swift on the server, and that is so cool. Yeah, it's really great. We are one of the, um, I think we're probably one of the bigger deployments of Swift on the server. Um, big, not in terms of sort of the machines that are running it, just because Swift is pretty performant, and we haven't had the need to go up above one, one dyno at mm-hmm. all. We're on Heroku, right? Okay. Um, we haven't had the need to go above one dyno at all because it's just like this thing uses no memory because it's designed for a mobile device. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no graphics in it because it's just an API. Uh, so you get no buffers, no, no raster, anything, no images, uh, minuscule memory usage, uh, pretty performant processor wise, you know, good app. And that's a lot of that is because of Swift because it's just like crazy. Like it's designed for these tiny little things we put in our pockets. And you put it on something that like lives in the cloud that can suck up as much power as it wants, and it just screams. Yeah, it's, that's that's incredible. Yeah. Um, so was Swift? So was using Swift on the server? Uh, did that seem at all like you know you were going to ship this app in five or six weeks? Did using something that you know a lot of people aren't using and is maybe not as like uh, tested in that environment? Did that seem like a risk at all to you? It was a little bit, and I remember I talked about it with Ashley, and I was like, I don't know if this is, like, exactly going to work out. Um, I don't know how bad it is, but I would like to try it, and um, for a couple of reasons. One, because the WWDC set in particular, I think, would get a kick out of the fact that not only this is the Swift on the front end, but it's also Swift on the back end. Uh, and that paid off in a couple of interesting ways. Like, we got mentioned in the Realm Swift panel with... Uh, Chris Latner, uh, Camille Taylor, a couple other people. And that was like a really, that was honestly maybe the highlight of my week is like basically getting on, mentioned on stage at this like, um, at this awesome panel. And um, so it was a little bit of a risk, but it was also like this could pay off for us in interesting ways. So we kind of were like, okay, we're going to play with it. And if it, if it's, if it's clearly showing that it's not working, we will, we will dump it and we will go to something more boring like Nodo Rails. Mm-hmm. But um, like we think there's, there's some value here. Um, and I kind of knew that, like, if it weren't for this project, I don't know when the next chance I would get to do a fun Swift on the server thing would be. And so I really wanted to, like, jump into it. Um, and I have, honestly, there's a lot of really broken and fucked up things, but, like, I have zero regrets. That's that's awesome. Uh, yeah. So speaking of, so um, it just seems, I I guess my questions are, so... Uh, you're using a framework, right? Right. On the web. Yeah. I think you're using one called Vapor. Vapor is the one that we're using, yeah. And what does that give you? 
Um, quite a bit actually. Uh, Vapor Two came out since I think since Dub Dub, but we haven't switched to it yet. Uh, so we're still on Vapor One Point Five, but that gives you basically routing, um, JSON parsing. Uh, in terms of like you get a request, it's got a body and it like parses mm-hmm. that JSON for you. It gives you an ORM that is not super full featured, but does have a good amount of stuff in it. Um, it'll give you sort of all the like uh, request handling things that you might expect. So sort of like how to um, pattern match to a route. Um, it'll give you the ability to have middleware. It's pretty full featured. I think it's like one step above Express, let's say, if you're familiar mm-hmm. with like the Node.js world, which I think is not replaced with Happy. I don't, I don't know. JavaScript's crazy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's like one step above that. So there is an ORM. Um, there's bindings for pretty much every popular database engine. Uh, we're using Postgres. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so it gives you quite a bit. Um, there's still some holes in what they offer. Um, some of those things I'm writing about on the blog uh, there's another post going up, I think tomorrow, which will be about sort of how to handle errors on the server because uh, because of the way everything works. Oh, sorry. Because of the way everything works, you um, almost every function on the server throws. And so at any point, you can really just do like try this thing. And if it blows up, that will like bubble up all the way to the server. And so error handling on the server is really, really important. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I've, I've written a couple posts about basically how to extend Vapor to make it give you not only the performance that you want, but also the expressiveness that you want, but without sacrificing on any of the correctness of like, hey, when I do this thing, like I want this specific HTTP status code and I want this specific error message to come through and I want it to be localized like this. And like mm-hmm. giving you all that stuff without having to compromise on any of the any of the other important components of like writing a good stable piece of software. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And was that um so my next question. So that that sounds amazing. I actually really want to down, you know, try Vapor now. Uh, what you know? So Heroku uh, obviously is not built with Swift in mind. What was it like uh, deploying Swift onto Heroku? Was that cha- was that was that especially challenging, or is it pretty normal and straightforward? There's one horror story that I really like to tell, um, which I which I'd be happy to share. Uh, but for the most part, yeah, pretty straightforward. Um, Heroku gives you this concept of build packs which are pretty much like a shell script that will set up your environment for you. So, you know, download and install Swift, download and install Clang, download and install Vapor, uh, put the thing in the right place, maybe run tests if you want, um, and then, like, actually spin up and run the app. Um, Mm -hmm. So these build packs, you know, you can just write them yourself. Uh, Kyle Fuller uh, wrote one and um, basically just, you know, works. Uh, And... There's not too much fuss that you have to worry about. Uh, you just kind of you just kind of hook it up. Um, the funny horror story is pretty much everything worked on the server except for login. Mm-hmm. And because of the way everything was set up, a uh, few things um, a few things went wrong to make this thing happen. Uh, one is we weren't getting any stack traces printed to the logs when the thing crashed. Mm-hmm. That was number one. That seems number, important. Yeah, that's really important. Um, <laughs> number two is that the server, right, when you when you write a client error and the client crashes, it crashes for that one user. Mm-hmm. If you write a server error and the server crashes, you know, force unwrap, try bang, uh, array out of bounds access, the server crashes for everyone. Everyone is using that same instance, especially if you are, as we are, like running on one dyno. 
Um, so you really, really can't crash. Uh, and of course, when um, we so we wrote this login endpoint and um, and and tried to log in, and then instant crash, just instantly, just fell over. And then mm-hmm. you got to restart the dynos, and there's no there's no stack trace, so you have no idea what line of code in this is like causing this problem, which is really pretty horrifying. So uh, I started debugging this thing, and um, I would basically comment out large swaths of code and see if the issue would persist itself. Uh, or it, if, if the issue persisted, then I knew it was not in the commented out portion, and it was in the like uncommented portion. And I tried to narrow stuff down, and I like I had like a bunch of red herrings. Like I narrowed it down to one thing, uh, returning an optional or not. But it turns out that was actually switching in some way later part of the code that like wasn't related. Mm-hmm. So the thing that I thought it was was just not important at all. Um, and just like so, I, I think I the first deploy was like eight p.m on a Friday and each deploy takes what, maybe five, six minutes. And so every time you want to test a change, it takes quite a bit of time before like it actually, you know, gets on the server and you can actually run it. And this, this issue was not happening on my local Docker at all. So I was running like a local Docker instance with, with Ubuntu not happening there, happening on the server. Mm -hmm. So I, I basically debugged this thing until five in the morning that morning. Um, just because every time I thought I would get close, I'd be like, Oh, one more deploy, one more deploy, one more deploy. And you know, it didn't work. So just do one more. And eventually, it's like five in the morning. I was like, I am not really any closer. I got to go to sleep. So I went to sleep, woke up at like noon the next day, and like <laughs> got back at it again. Found out that, first of all, the server, um, unless you define a Swift version by including a .swift type of version file in mm-hmm. your basically root, will just install 3.0, not 3.1. So that's the first problem. Once I started installing Swift 3.1, then... Um, it started giving me stack traces, which was really nice. And I used the stack traces to kind of figure out what was going wrong. And then around 5 p.m. that day, so another five hours of debugging this one thing, I eventually found out that in Swift Foundation, uh, or like CoreLibs Foundation, that they package up with Linux, like the rewrite of Foundation so that you can use it on the server, uh, in a non-Mac OS environment, had a bug in it where if you tried to base 64 encode some data, it would just crash everything. It would just all fall over. And I replaced it with a, um, like, just a purely Swift version of Base64 that somebody wrote and put on GitHub, mm-hmm. and everything worked, and it was fine. Um, but it took many hours. It was, like, 12 to 15 hours of just debugging this one thing. Um, and so when you ask, like, did Heroku work out? Kind of. Like, yeah. I wish it had worked out a little better. But ultimately, once that happened, we were more or less in good shape. So Well, that's good. Yeah. So, that, yeah. so you had that one horror story, but besides that... It was, it was mostly okay. Harrowing, Colin. Like, sounds like you lost like you, it was just yeah. Not it great. sounds like you lost like an entire day on this. Like pretty much, and didn't yeah. sleep basically, and yep. that sounds horrible. Yep. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and 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 having not slept, I could tell. Like in retrospect, there were things I should have been paying attention to that I missed just because I was so tired. And like the other moral of the story is like get some sleep. You need yeah. to sleep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so my, my, my final question about uh, the Swift on the server thing is, what do you think, what would you like to see Apple do that would make this better and easier in the future? What kind of improvements could they make to the language or frameworks or whatever? Yeah, that is a really good question, Connell. Or Colin, oh, God. <laughs> uh, I merged your first and last names. It's okay. Not the first uh, time. That is a really good question, Colin. Um, I have a 25% opinion 
you know, I'm 25% confident in this opinion. Uh, I haven't said this publicly anywhere yet, so this is really, you know, this is breaking news. Mm-hmm. Uh, I th- I kind of think Apple should write their own framework for the server. Mm-hmm. It's not that much work. Uh, I've heard whisperings that they're already using Vapor internally. So why rely on Vapor when you could write something that is more to your own taste, especially if you have Apple's resources? Um, you can You can make server framework development and language development happen in lockstep so that you firsthand feel the pain of what things the language needs to be really effective on the server. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would also be the default choice that everybody would use just because it's like first party, basically. Yeah. Um, that being said, the reason that it's only a 25% opinion is one, like I'm sure people are screaming at their car stereos right now. Like we really don't need to be like subject to Apple for another platform that like gets updated once a year. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a big one. Uh, it is still resources that they may or may not have to spend on it. There, is, there are plenty of options that already exist. So, like one of them really should be good enough. Um, so that's why it's only a twenty-five percent opinion. But I kind of, I don't think it's a good idea. I don't know. I yeah, I guess I would say uh, having I haven't used Vapor yet, but I, I have had that thought before that it would be cool if Apple just said, you know, this is the way to do this thing. You yeah. know. Um, but yeah, then you said the thing about it being updated once a year, and I'm like, God, they <laughs> yeah. do that. Yep. Um, and that would be a real bummer. So, and uh, like resources might get pulled off of it to work on UIKit or a Swift stuff, and it's like, well, do we really want that to be possible? I don't feel like it would require that. I mean, I yeah. I don't know, but I don't feel like it would require that big of a team to do this. No, these frameworks are not complicated, and like I, they're they're simple enough to where I've I've debated like writing one myself of just that just like has all the exact quirks you know that I would mm-hmm. want. So I don't know. Um, so that's one thing that I think Apple should consider doing. Um, another thing that th- there's a few other like language features that I think would be nice. I think um, multi-line string literals in Swift four is going to be huge. There is enough like SQL and stuff like that that really requires multi-lines um, that will be important. Another big one, um, there's a proposal out for this by Brent Royal Gordon, and it's to basically add a lot more power to the uh, string interpolation components of the language so mm-hmm. that you could actually interpolate a SQL query string, and it would be able to basically determine what those uh, string interpolation segments are evaluate them for you and then separate them out so that you could handle them in special ways. So like, for example, SQL, you might want the ability to um, take each of those, replace the segment in your original string with a placeholder like dollar sign one or question mark, depending on your you know flavor of SQL, mm-hmm. and then pass the parameter itself out of band to the database so that the database can perform all the necessary uh, escaping and prevention of like SQL, SQL, QL uh, injection attacks and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's an, that's another really big thing that I think will be helpful. That's like supposed to be coming down the down the pipeline. Um, I will see if I can find a uh, a proposal for you so you can put it in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, what else could they do? Uh, oh, um, I mentioned this earlier. Uh, one big one would be um, having conditional conformances. Again, this is coming. Uh, they know that it's kind of necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, that would let you say, 
uh, JSON dictionaries must have keys as strings and must have JSON values as their uh, like value as their like you know value type. And currently, you can kind of do this with an enum, but then destructuring the enum is such a pain in the butt that it's like not really worth it. That's how Vapor works at this moment, but like really, it's not ideal. And then you can't express some things as like a protocol. So you, what you really would want is the ability to say, well, here's a UUID that I have in my system. I want to declare that that UUID is basically convertible to a JSON value. Mm-hmm. And then when that happens, like I want to call UUID string on it. Or a date, I want to convert it, let's say, to ISO 6801, or I want to convert it to millisecond sense the epic. And then um, convert, in, and then the system will convert that for you just by you saying, like, hey, put this date in this JSON thing. It'll automatically naturally for you um construct that like actual json thing Mm -hmm. so that also be a really important and valuable thing um what other components uh reflection uh would be really important right now when you define like a model in uh in vapors orm you pretty much you have to define every key as like a property because you want to store all this data and have like strong Mm -hmm. types non-optional um and then you have to define it in your they call it like init with node, which basically the node could either be a database row or it could be a uh, JSON blob. And so you have to switch on this context to get into like figure out exactly how to unpack the object itself from um, the from this like node. Uh, I know that's a little bit confusing. I'm honestly still a little bit confused about how no- the node stuff in Vapor works. But I think I'm picturing it sort of. It sounds kind of gross. Yeah, it's not great. And so basically you have to have... Every property once in your declaration, every property once in your like init with database node, every property mm-hmm. once in init with JSON. And then you also want to be able to convert the thing to a database node so that the system can save it. That's another, you know, line for each property. And then same likewise with converting to JSON. You again want to be able to convert uh, or you you again want one line for each property. And then like, okay, you add one more line for like the database preparation so they can add the necessary fields and re- columns and whatever. And you end up basically duplicating all this data. It and sounds like at least three times, right? At least three times, um, if not more. Um, mm-hmm. Some of mine have four. Uh, and if I did like really the full-blown thing, it could be like six. So right. the dream is you could bring sorcery to the server and then define something like a protocol with a bunch of annotations on it that would say, well, when this goes into the database, it should snake case everything when it goes into the uh, JSON, it's your camel case, and so on. Like define all these basically attributes of each property, and have it generate those implementations for you. Mm-hmm. Um, the other benefit then there, of course, is you can use the same um, source of truth protocols to define what that JSON looks like on your client side as well, right? Like right now we have a mono repo. Both the app and the API are both in the same repo. You can actually generate everything in one fell swoop. So if you add one parameter, it could add it to the database for you, add it to all the JSON responses, add it to the expected JSON responses on the client side, and you know, done. Open a pull request. Nice. Uh, yeah. So I think some form of reflection would be really good. Um, getting sorcery support requires NS coding. Requires couple other complexities to work themselves out but even sorcery would be really sorcery is a code gen tool uh, if yeah. your listeners are not familiar mm-hmm. um we'll drop a link to that in the show notes as well um but What's yeah so like yeah <laughs> um the other people can't tell but i just noticed you've dropped in like uh like at least 10 links into the show notes for me so i don't have to do <laughs> anything now yep um it's when you so we we have a podcast as well uh called fatal error 
And when you do this, you like don't want to have to do all this like the second time through. So you just keep the links coming as you're as you're working through the through the show. Um, but yeah, so Source Relay lets you code gen, so you can basically have a protocol and then generate all of these uh, implementations for yourself. That would be a huge thing as well, and that would really also help um, like the work that we're doing on the server. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was a lot of words. That no, that's great. I, yeah. I feel like you, you've given Apple a lot to work on. Uh, that's right. You know, hopefully they're listening. Expecting these to come in Swift Five anytime. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure that Craig is listening, and he's going to <laughs> get them right on this. That's exactly right. Well, Sarush, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate the invitation. It was a real pleasure to chat with you. Yeah, this is wonderful. Thank you so much again. Uh, why don't you say how people can find all the relevant things about you? Uh, cool. Yeah, I think the canonical representation of me on the internet is my blog. Uh, so conlu.com. Uh, read all the posts. Read the archives. I think they're pretty good. Um, I also have a Twitter account that I mostly post new podcasts and new blog posts on with the occasional joke. Um, it's also at Conlu. Um, and then uh, the podcast I mentioned earlier is called Fatal Error. I host it with Chris Zombach, uh, and that's a fun one. Um, if you're looking for more uh, iOS-y, programmy podcast stuff for your commutes and you're walking around and doing dishes, we we get really technical and we get really mm-hmm. into the code and stuff. So if you are... Looking for that kind of thing, uh, our podcast might be might be fun. Um, but yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Well, thanks again. And if you'd like to uh, if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, it's at Colin Donnell. You can follow the show at the Run Loop. And uh, if you want to support the show on Patreon, it's patreon.com slash Colin Donnell. Uh, thank you for listening and thank you, Sarish, for coming on the show. Cool. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much.